Hello, everyone. Welcome to a very exciting episode of Outside the Studio. I am Tessa, your host. We have a, I say every guest is special, and I mean it, I do. And today is no exception. We have a very, very special guest. I'm so honored to be joined by Acharya Shunya. Acharya Shunya, which Shunya, I will refer to you um, as your name for this interview. Um, will you tell us what that means? You told me before I started to record, but I'd love to hear you say it. Well, Shunya is a beautiful Sanskrit word and it means infinity. Mm-hmm. I love that. Mm-hmm. So before we dive in, I'll tell you a little bit about Shunya uh, and what we'll be talking about today. Shunya is a truth teller who facilitates authenticity, self-remembrance, and divine feminine pathways to awakening within. The first female head of her 2,000-year-old Indian spiritual lineage, Shunya reinterprets and recontextualizes ancient teachings for modern times. Empowering people everywhere to lead fearless, fulfilled, and enlightened lives, she is president of Awakened Self Foundation and founder of Vedika Global Inc. in California, and is the author of best-selling books Ayurveda, Lifestyle Wisdom, and Sovereign Self, as well as this beautiful new book from Sounds True called Roar Like a Guy. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm going to butcher it. Let me start over. Roar Like a Goddess, Every Woman's Guide to Becoming Unapologetically Powerful, Prosperous, and Peaceful. So there's so many things that I I would love to cover with you today, Shunya. In particular, I just love how this book is broken up into three parts, and you chose three goddess archetypes to focus on, Durga, Lakshmi, and Sarasvati. Um, And topics that I'd love to touch on today include feminism, the, the goddess archetype in general, and using that to combat patriarchy, the goddess and self-worth and empowered partnership. And so welcome to the show, Shunya. How are you today? I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your time. I feel so honored. So I want to dive into, let's let's zoom out a little bit. And would you please define for us what what are we talking about when we say goddess archetype theory? Mm-hmm. Since ancient times, humans have conceived of goddesses. And the goddess is a is the archetype is really a, um, a, a container of ideals and ideas and empowered attitudes and actions and beliefs that a goddess could embody. And when I refer to the goddess archetype theory, I'm talking about the goddesses that were conceived 10,000 years ago and even older because that kind of knowledge cannot really be traced to a timeline. And this goddess, these goddesses are connected to the Vedic slash Hindu culture that blossomed in the what is now India but that was once a huge, vast um, land that included so many other countries. It was a very big um, nation. And over there on the banks of the rivers, uh, the men and women, the seers, they experienced 
the divine absolute, the divine formless as masculine, as feminine. And also there's a conception of transgender, mixed gender, and no gender divinity, which I really, really love. And that divine feminine aspect was then brought home in the form of goddesses. Now each goddess from India represents a set of values, which when internalized feed all new attitudes, perceptions, and can do abilities within us arise that were formerly latent or asleep. So the goddess archetype theory is really studying about these goddesses, unpacking their symbolism, understanding their mythology as psychological, as teachings on the psyche and how to transform it and change it for the betterment for women and all feminine gender identified folks today who typically are still kind of trying to prove that they are worthy they're not invisible, they're not second-class citizens. Um, and uh, but the goddess archetype theory brought forth in my book, Roar Like a Goddess, will really put it out there so that we can get rid of that, first and foremost, the internalized beliefs where we somehow uh, unconsciously take a second place. And that's what really I'm trying to do with this book. Mm-hmm. It's such important work. I I love utilizing goddess energy in my own spiritual practice. If I'm sitting to meditate, I often, lately I've been working with the goddess Lakshmi, which you um, include in part two of this book. And I'd love it if you wouldn't mind giving us, if, if we're new to goddess archetype in particular, since you focus on Durga, Lakshmi, and Sarasvati, would you give us an overview of who these goddesses are and how we can think about them. The Durga archetype is power incarnate. It's so fascinating that power is not just something that belongs to a masculine worldview or wielded by masculine bodies, but power itself is described in feminine terms in Sanskrit known as Shakti. And if we were to conceive of power, then we would conceive of her as a goddess. And this goddess is Durga. And what is more, the fun stuff is that the goddess, this Durga, not only lives in some far away, inaccessible location, like we think of gods and goddesses to be far beyond the clouds, but she's coming to us through our life experiences, the good, bad, the ugly, lovely, really not to suck our power out of us, but for us to find our power and act from it. And ultimately, she dwells within us as our own higher consciousness. So she brings home the path of power for truth, power for sensitivity, power for goodness. We have seen the other version of power where if someone has power, you can counter it, Tessa. And you might have met those people who are arrogant or selfish or entitled because of it. But Durga's power brings together the opposites of compassion and power, empathy and power. And this is this unique feminine power. And can you imagine 
Can you just imagine a world where all beings had this power beating in their heart? Then none would be less and none would be more. And there would be a place on our planet for everyone. Men, women, queer, transgender, those who are still discovering themselves and their sexuality, different races, religions. What a place our world would become. So when we remember Durga and when we learn when we when we go into her symbolism, as I try to do in the first part of my book, we learn about why it's not bad to sometimes experience your anger, why raging is a goddess thing to do, because we're, we're not talking about unconscious anger that makes us sick and though we make us wild and sick. I'm talking about the conscious anger. I'm talking about super conscious anger that makes us protect ourselves, our loved ones, our community, our planet, our animals, our rivers. It makes us write books like Roar Like a Goddess from a desire to change the lot of everyone and take our planetary consciousness forward. She talks, she teaches us through her own stories about why emotional, sexual, intellectual, physical boundaries are important. She, she shows how uh, we need not lead stereotypical lives reduced just to this body biology culture that we have been born in or we're associated with, but rather own our unboxed inner divinity. So Durga is all about championing the inner heroine, the inner hero within us. And her name itself, Durga, is said to be a mantra, a, a, a sound that when we chant that Durga, 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 we open um, closed doors within our own awareness to access that power. And we know we have it because when we are pushed in a corner, sometimes we find the courage. But if we study her archetype and embody it, then we don't have to be really suffering to own that power. We can own it, you know, while going shopping, while making love, while raising babies. Lakshmi's archetype, and I'm and I have a Lakshmi right here on my desk too, like you do. She is this, like now that you're fearless and you're feeling like it's a less hostile planet, then how about you experience your life in all its fullness? You And she says, well, there are four important goals in life. One is to become conscious, known as dharma. The other is to discover who you really are, a spirit, goddess, which is moksha. But you also need to become materially and emotionally stable, which is known as artha, become prosperous, become happy. And finally, karma, which means sexually alive, sensually pleasured, playful in life. So Lakshmi really represents the inner permission that all of us women have to give ourselves to, to stop living in these boxes of like, well, I'm really austere, or you know, or I don't, I don't hang loose, or I don't endorse this or that. But I'm being overly pious and forgetting that we are whole, you know, or are we being overly crazy? indulging ourselves and forgetting to come home to something serene and quiet within. So Lakshmi gives us that power and Lakshmi tells us to have the right relationship with wealth and prosperity. For too long, 
we've pushed away the wealth. We've been told to wear our poverty, our sacrifice, our generosity like a badge. But on the contrary, Lakshmi is adorned with silks and rubies and diamonds and butterflies swarm around her and she sits in lotuses and flowers blossom as she walks. I mean, she's one dainty goddess who wants everything beautiful in the universe for herself and for others. And she, Tessa, gives us the ability to really start having a new relationship with pleasure and prosperity that we need. And finally, Saraswati is the goddess of that inner truth, like bare-boned, naked truth. She's sometimes also known as Kali, the naked goddess, because there's no garments to cover up her authenticity. And she's the goddess who's often seen lost in her own music, which is her inner voice. She's, she's like detached from the noises and the opinions and the gossip of the world. And she's lost in the music of her own soul. And in her section, I talk about my own trauma uh, from, from an arranged marriage that I had to leave because it was a patriarchal setup. I talk about my own um, uh, wounds and how I ultimately learned to discern that this pain came to me, but it came for me so I could grow from it. It's not the, my only reality. The broken part of me the shattered part of me is not the only me. Look at who I am now. Look at what I'm becoming now, later, soon, because of that pain, because of that shadow. So Saraswati in her mythology too shows how she was made invisible, but how she, she didn't get distracted by it or broken by it. She just kept choosing herself. She was so visible to herself that everything faded away. And I really use her model in relationships to do my own thing, to source myself self-worth, to prioritize my life, and to pretty much live the life I was meant to lead on this planet in my goddess avatar as a human woman. So these goddesses, in short, bring the book alive. And I hope um, this, in very short summary, inspires our listeners. Yes, I mean, I it has for me. So I, I appreciate you putting this work out there and, and sharing it with the world. It's so important more than ever. Uh, so thank you. Uh, so I, I would like to start with, I mentioned four topics that I want to touch on today, feminism, patriarchy, self-worth, um, and this idea of empowered partnership or um the comma that embracing our sexuality and our sensual pleasure. Uh, I'd like to, to start with patriarchy. Uh, this is something that, it, yes, it's a hot topic right now. It's, it's something we're all kind of grappling with. It seems to me like, and I'm, I'm curious what you think as you look out at the world and in your experience, it feels like there's a fall of patriarchy and a rise of matriarchy or goddess archetype. And um, so maybe we should start by defining patriarchy. You know, I think it's something that we can use in passing 
and maybe not really understand what we're saying when we mean patriarchy. So as it relates to goddess archetype theory, how would how would you define patriarchy? Well, I define it in my book as a belief. It's ultimately a belief that puts men first. It promotes a society dominated by men, masculinity, sexually, emotionally, economically, religiously, politically. It has masculinized attitudes and learnings and um, actions and consequences that it plays out. And unfortunately, although we've made a lot of progress, this belief is pervasive. And whether we live in a contemporary society or a traditional society, you still encounter it. It just morphs and changes in how it appears or looks, but it's ubiquitous. It's an insidious social disease. It's hard to uproot. And it morphs and adapts and appears in every era, every culture. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and at the heart of it is this struggle, this duality between power and weakness. And the male body is, and the male ideas are seen as powerful and the female body and the female version of power, which is more collaborative and consensus driven, consensus driven is seen as weak. And why just a woman's body, any body that is different from a male body, such as a queer body, a transgender body, a gender expansive body, a, a challenged body, or even a young body versus an older body, all these bodies that are not equipped, strong, male, masculine, are seen as weaker, and maybe even an impediment to the evolution and success of society, materially and spiritually. Now, this is a belief that probably started when, um, when we were in the early, early time when uh, the men would go hunting and the woman would raise babies. It was not because the woman couldn't go hunting, but the human collective in itself was so fragile and vulnerable, we had to, you know, divide and conquer. One set of people went uh, food gathering and the other went hunting. But from there, those, the society still did unbelievable, are still reeling with patriarchy. But the Vedas, or this tradition of knowledge that even precedes all religions that have come out of India, and many have, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Veda comes even prior to all these religions, and it was more of a universal wisdom. And we find a call to these goddesses and a, to, you know, to lead the world and a call to women uh, householders and spiritual spiritual women to lead the world, to lead the society. I find a very progressive tone in the society, so much so that Vedas are the first scriptures which don't just have the writings and musings of male seers, but 27 female seers have contributed equally to the Vedas. So you can just see how progressive it was. But then India gradually became patriarchal with the march of time and the influx of more patriarchal religions and cultures in India. The Vedic ethos started 
fading out and the patriarchal stain and the good and the bad and the sinner and the saved, you know, that kind of concept became more pervasive, which is found ubiquitously on all religions. And gradually the woman was seen as this weak, disempowered person. And if any one of them rose up to her own truth, well, she was either an exception or she was a rebel. But, you know, it was not the common thing to do. And that's why re going back to the Vedic goddess theory, bringing out those same stories which actually show the goddesses dealing with any obstacles and then overcoming it in an empowered way was necessary for her daughters and her children today so that we too can then act like Durga when we are divorced or when we are um, slut-shamed or we are just shamed, period, for being who we are, for not being enough. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry about my genitals, but I'm not enough. Well, that's where we need the goddesses. And these are some bold goddesses, some bold goddesses, not bold in just terms of being in your face, but they could be peacefully bold. They could be pleasure, pleasurefully, if that's a word, bold. And they are like bold, bold. And um, it seems from my two decades of teaching this verbally, now the book comes out, and teaching it to a world audience of people from every religion, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity, agnostics, atheists, everybody finds set the central premise of archetypes being internalized attitudes, internalized permissions as very workable. Because if you tell someone, don't be scared, come on, deal with your mom in law, it's fine. They'll hear it from one ear and let it go from another. But if they hear a story with imagery of how to deal with an authority figure who's like really out to, you know, suppress you and subjugate you into obedience, and you see how the goddess did it, that's just going to stay with you. And that's what happened with me. I heard these stories, I churned these stories, I became the story. I'm wondering if you would, would mind sharing a myth, a story, as it pertains to this idea, um, right now i for me that's how i i grew up listening to myth and story from a native american tradition and i listened a lot to clarissa pinkola estes um mm -hmm. run with the wolves and there's so much layered meaning and metaphor and teachings and, and stories like that that i feel like really taught me you know although i didn't i don't feel like we really had this rite of passage into womanhood. It kind of gave me that sense of, okay, this is what it means to menstruate. Okay. This is what it means to be a maiden. Okay. This is what it means to be the mother. Okay. This is what it means to be the crone. Um, and so in that way, I could see a path forward as a woman, as identifying as feminine. Um, and I think that story and myth and archetypes like goddesses are so helpful in that. So would you mind sharing one? A myth. Yes. I mean, from one of, from my book. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there are a few. The book is not crawling with myths. I just, I just share six or seven at most 
but then there's a lot of unpacking and then application in our life. But one I really like is about um, Shiva is a Hindu god and his wife is Shakti, the goddess. And um, she was in her, she started out as a woman woman, like a biological woman. And she um, fell in love with God, like, like a seeker who falls in love with divine absolute reality. And because it's mythology, you can actually get to wed the God. And so she insisted. And her parents, who were the king of the mountains of the Himalayas, the king and queen of the Himalayas, didn't really approve because they didn't really have a spiritual perspective. And they didn't really understand who Shiva was. And those who don't know Shiva, he's a Hindu god who's often seen with a snake wrapped around his neck. He's often naked. But but for a lion, uh, a cloth around him, like a lion skin wrapped around him, and he's often wearing ashes, and he represents dissolution, timelessness, truth, raw naked spirit. So you know he's not gonna be, you know, dressed like you know in 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 robes and stuff. He was just like really really stark, and he lived like a yogi, like a mystic, like a monk, deep in the caves of the Himalayas in his when whenever he appeared to humans he would show up like that they didn't approve of the wedding but she insisted and she was a princess and she got her way and so the princess married god and and the reason she married god was because she was really shakti and when she was born just at birth uh, she spoke to her parents and she said i am the great divine goddess shakti and i have taken incarnation as your daughter and I will remain your daughter till you respect me. And that's it. And they all remembered, wow, what a miracle, this, that. But then with time, they forgot. They forgot about how she was an extraordinary child, not an ordinary child. Just like we forget, we're extraordinary. We come from spirit, as spirit into little bodies, like containers, and then we forget who we are. And so that's why she yearned to marry God, because that was her completion. He was her other half. So she married him and she left. And then she heard a couple of years later that her, her, her parents, the king and queen, had organized a great fire ritual. The fire ritual is a Hindu Vedic ceremony, a sacred ceremony like the Native Americans have. We have our own version of it. And he had called so many guests from across the universe and so sitting on her in her stark mountain abode with her beloved god husband shiva she found that the moon god and his two wives they were all dressed up and walking across the galaxy to the mountains and she said where are you going and she goes oh don't you know your dad has invited us to this grand ritual and we've been waiting for it and now we're going there. And so she saw all these celestial guests arriving, but she and her husband had not received an invitation. She was really hurt and she was really mad. And so she went to her family and her husband said, don't go, you've not been invited. But she's like in a daughter mode. And she said, I'm gonna go ask them. And so she showed up there and she said, how come I didn't get an invitation? 
And her father said, well, it's so embarrassing. We want you. But then you'll walk in with your husband who barely has any clothes to put on his body. And I've invited all these royal kingly people, guests to my party, to my, to my ritual. So I can have that. But now that you're here, you can stay and maybe you can borrow some decent clothes from your mother for the occasion. And the goddess says, because she channeled her rage and in her rage, she remembered who she is. And she said, I'm not going to stay. And nor will this body stay with, with which you think you're, I'm your daughter and you are my father and you get to call the shots. This is This body is the source of this morbid attachment where I had expectations and you had expectations. And I'm going to discard this body right now and I'm going to come into my own truth. And suddenly a flame erupted from her being and the beloved daughter, the princess, like she lay charred on the floor and the goddess emerged as this bolt of lightning. Of course she would join Shiva later, but she emerged and she left. And the king and the queen on their great ritual had nothing but a burning corpse in front of them. And this is a very radical story. And when I heard it in my childhood, it would give me the goosebumps. And I would tell my mom not to tell me that story, but she insisted. And she would often tell me the same story like mothers tend to do. And she'd make it more dramatic every time. But you can draw so many lessons from it. For example, one thing that she had asked for that I will stay your daughter or I will stay your daughter-in-law or your sister-in-law or your best friend until I have the respect from you. And the moment she realized there is no respect, she burned that very container with which one could be possessive, one could manipulate, one could, you know, uh, capitalize on it. She became, came, like burning it meant she came, she burned the very threads of attachment and she came into her true form, which they could not reach, access, ploy, manipulate, seduce, and guilt, trip, and shame, least of all. Also, it shows how, how each one of us has to then access our rage rather than suppressing it and becoming too friendly, too nice, too kind, too generous, too accommodating, too understanding all the time, like we are historically told to do. And that was a great teaching for me because at many times I've had to burn that very container with which people, the container of a relationship with, with, with people were uh, gaming with me, almost playing with me. And that hustle ends right there and then when I step back into my own self and then I'm no longer somebody's auntie or friend or even a teacher for them at some point. It's like, we're done. I'm the pure self. The goddess within me is roaring with displeasure. And the only way I can be back in pleasure is to reclaim my own sovereignty. And that's that. So this is a powerful myth, but maybe there are listeners out there who'll understand the importance of it. Yeah. Do you have, did you have a sense as a child what your mother was trying to teach you? Did she say explicitly, this is the lesson? You know, she didn't live long enough. She only lived till my age 10. I talk about that. But she kind of was a roaring woman in the 1960s. 
And she really made me and my sister very comfortable in our skin. She was also very lucky to have my dad and my own family as a very progressive container. But she must have known because she had a congenital heart condition that she was born with, that she won't live long. And she would huddle us and we'd say, mom, tell us a story about a cow and a goat. And she'd say, I want to tell you the story of this goddess who really knew the value of respect. And I'm like all of eight. And, and, and so I think she was trying to prepare me for when I would not be safe anymore. Because when after I left that safety net of my own family and I walked into an arranged marriage, boom, reality check. I walked into a setup where I was not, not, not overtly rejected, but coldly, coldly distanced. I was, my, 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 my personality was frozen off because it was too much for people. And there was, there was this polite disdain because I would not, you know, toe the line. And it, it, it was so befuddling because if people are nasty to you, you can kind of roar. But when you're, but when they're almost nice to you, then you wonder if something's wrong with you for not towing the line. But thankfully, due to the Vedic wisdom uh, of the true self and reality from my grandfather and these stories from my mother, I think I was prepared to not to be to be lightly grazed but not not bleed to death for sure yeah yeah thank you for sharing that this is we're heading into the topic of self-respect um and being able to really embody that and i if it's okay with you i'd like to share something from the book it's please okay thank you it's on page 68 and um it, I mean, you basically said it. It's the number one lesson from Shakti, embody self-respect. It is time every woman made self-respect more important than romance, beauty, looks, domestic bliss, and securing professional achievements. If you don't stand up for yourself, be it at work or at home, chances are no one else will. It is self-respect alone that leads to healthy boundaries. And then you go on to explore telltale signs of lack of self-respect and how to work through that. But I think this is such an important um, topic, subject to really dive into, understand, and give us practical tips on, because I feel like this is such a, something that people don't generally get taught or women don't, in fact, we're taught the opposite, to be submissive, to be, to toe the line, right? So if we're coming to this idea of embodying self-respect for the first time, how can we begin to really embody it in our daily lives and show up with that goddess energy, that Shakti energy? Every blade of grass deserves respect. Everything deserves respect. And if you are a representation of that divine intelligence, call it God, Goddess, Mother Mary, Durga, doesn't matter. If that light dwells within you too, then the only thing that is worthy to nourish and uphold that light is respect. And if you want respect, you have to first respect yourself. And, and here's the first beginner's lesson to respect. 
which I have perfected in my own life. And that's why I speak from authority. What comes in the way of respect and radical goddess self-respect is like we don't respect ourselves enough because we keep a list of where we failed, where we're not enough, where we are inadequate, where we are inauthentic. You know, we have this ideal and we fall short and then others also tell us where we fall short. So we don't think we're worthy of it. But this is where you have to come into, that's why you need to read books like mine, which give you a larger context of your own divinity and your failures and your brokenness and your stupidity and your blindsidedness all belong to this divine paradigm. It's not outside it. So you and your foolishness, you and your absent-mindedness, you and your ignorance together are divine. It's not like this universe only has the early morning dawn and no sunset. There is nighttime and there is morning. There is old age and there is youth. There is beauty and there is the loss of the beauty. And all of this, this radical wholeness is that divine goddess Shakti. And so to, you can say, yep, I'm still in a journey, but wow, you know, wow, all of this deserves a sacred respect. Like if you walk into your backyard and if you have some plants and trees there, you'll notice or in nature, something is blossoming, something is browning, something is growing new leaves, something is dropping it, but all of it is sacred. So you have to develop a, a sacred perception towards all of you. And that's when I refused to take any blame. I was like, I'm a very sensitive person, conscientious person. I'm willing to, for example, small things like, hey, you kept the cup here and you didn't put it in the sink. What a bad person you are, okay? Noted, I'm a bad person. Now I'm like, maybe I was not born on earth to drink a cup of tea and then put it in the sink right away. Maybe it requires a eight hour period in between. Okay, that's just how it's gonna be. You know, it's like I came to these new agreements about accepting myself radically, of course, with dharma and lights on so that I'm not justifying my selfishness or craziness. But I also became very sympathetic towards my journey. None of us got a manual of how to be. On top of that, we were conditioned to be good, 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 holy, 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 holy to the point of craziness. And we have to reclaim our anger, our rage, our frustration, and even look at what is that trying to tell us in a divine setup. Then gradually we can have respect when you respect yourself. And if right now our listeners are hearing me, I want you to put your hands on your heart and just take a, give yourself a salute for where you've come and how far you have come without any real or permanent help. And everybody comes and goes, even our parents don't live long enough. People just, we're just alone journeying through this life and how many more lifetimes. And then to not respect yourself for this, it's spirituality 101 for me is self-respect and and that's why I use the goddess theories to 
remind myself. And once you've been through those journeys of seeing Goddess Shakti burn her entire body, rather than, you know, renegotiate or argue with her dad, it was like, oh, I can burn this specific equation. Like, you know, for me, body means burning an equation. And that's that. There was a school, there was a physical school. I have a worldwide school, but there was this smaller space I had where, um, you know, I would go pretty regularly at a systematic timetable and I'd show up for those who wanted to be with me. But gradually I found that lesser and lesser students were physically present. They were more present online because it's more convenient. And I'm the one who's driving 40 minutes either way. Probably someone was driving me to show up. They still want my teachings. They still are deeply respectful to me, but they had forgotten that one body is driving up to that space and other bodies also need to drive up to that space to make it an equal give and take of respect. Mm -hmm. Well, one day I walked in and I burned that equation and I announced the amount of physically present students are too low for my physical body to drive up to this place anymore. And that day and today, it all ended. That, that part of that equation. And students cried and wrote me long letters, sent me flowers, growled, guilted me, uh, wrote, had me in their dreams. <laughs> oh, we need you, da-da-da, da-da-da. It was okay. And never again, that equation of me alone driving if I'm not met. So mm -hmm. I use those things to just burn them. I just burn that pathway. I, I strike new agreements then. And the new agreement was, want to learn from me? Join me in my live stream. And, you know, it's it's not that I don't love those students. It was actually... I love them so much that I dare to show them what it means to lead a self-respecting goddess-like life rather than this clingy teacher who want to hold on to one more group of students. I'm like, we're done. I'm still here. I'm still in the body. You want to join me? Find me where I am. And now students travel with me to Bahamas, to this, to that, to study with me rather than 10 minutes away. It's what it is. Yeah, that's a great example. I love that. Uh, you mentioned a, a, an arranged marriage and then leaving it. And I'd like, to, if you wouldn't mind sharing, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. And also as it pertains to goddess archetype theory, how that, this idea, how you used this to break out of your own relationship. And did, did that ultimately lead to writing Roar? Somewhere it did, I think, but I think, see, leaving an arranged marriage, coming to America, you'd think it sort out the problems, but it didn't, because I continued meeting with patriarchal characters, walls, and ideas, even in the Western world, mm -hmm. and sometimes even more virulently, because it's competitive and everybody's for themselves in that sense. So, but that marriage, it was hard because you, I, I'm a spiritual teacher and spiritual teachers are either expected to be celibate or at the least monogamous. Mm -hmm. 
why would they even choose multiple partners or more partners? Or don't they have the emotional EQ to make a marriage work? And you know how it's always a woman's fault, no matter what. And it's it happens in America too, where when people pick sides after a divorce, it's the woman who gets to be the bad person more than the man, and rather than like leaving them alone to work their thing out. So for me, coming from a traditional um, society with a traditional role, it was um, it was bigger than it is today, you know, uh, around divorce in India. But this was also 35 years ago. So this was just a different hymen era. Mm-hmm. And my partner made an effort to meet me where I am. But in India, you get married to the whole extended family, not just to one person. And I think that happens in cultures some cultures more than others. So I had to determine in in a way that that was self-respecting, but dharmic, ethical to leave. And I've been married again now for 25 years and I have a happy life. And even my former partner is my friend. But uh, it was definitely a moment where I had to choose between conformity and roaring and I chose to roar and I did it by myself like it was like my solo decision and I think that played a big role and I found amongst the goddesses that we come across goddess Lakshmi as having different living situations where she was once living in the heavens now she's known as the consort or even the wife of a male god, Vishnu. And for a long time, I had heard that she's like this ultimate wife, ultimate wife, always smiling, always giving gifts. Uh, But, you know, I know the scriptures, so I've gone into her deeper mythology and you find that, well, there was a time prior to her marriage with Vishnu that she lived in the heavens and she found like, like the physical heaven. And she found that, um, an opportunity occurred where she felt taken, being taken for granted. She felt like tossed, you know, like, like you toss a garland. She felt tossed. And what she did was she kept quiet, but she got up and she left. And she disappeared into the ocean of consciousness, which means she went back. In mythology, she's the daughter of the ocean, but Subjectively, it means she returned into her own true space. And later, when she re-emerged after, and I, I share that mythology in the book after a lot of effort and churning of the ocean and whatnot, she emerges astride, this, sitting on a pink lotus as big as the moon, with billions of butterflies who had disappeared with her when the goddess left to, to re-emerge. And all the sea animals came to greet at their mother, and the sun went behind a cloud to give her shade and the wind began to blow with aromas of flowers that had emerged because of her. And then this goddess saw so many so many eyes. She saw the good, the good guys and the bad guys, the good people and the bad people. You know, some were looking at her with lust so they could have her and have what good luck she brings. And some wanted her even to venerate her and get some protection. But then she looked in Lord Vishnu's eyes and all she saw was love, 
respect and that equal divinity, that shared higher consciousness. And she had come out holding a garland of intention and she put that garland around him. And ever since then, they became a pair known as Lakshmi and Narayana or Lakshmi and Vishnu. So I remembered the story and my mother would say how Lakshmi got up and shut the door quietly. She was not trying to make her anger into shutting the door with a thud because back then I was a young kid and I'd shut the door with a thud trying to show you know my attitude. She said, when you have to do really big things, you can do it with quietness too. Mm. And so she would show me how Lakshmi shut the door of heaven and then just gave herself into the ocean. And then she would show me how she emerged as the sovereign goddess and she found this pure love, equality and respect, and she chose him. And so for me, I had to shut the door quietly on the setup that was not respecting me, recognizing me, and was actually disempowering me so that I could find a person who I have in my husband, Sanjay, who, who reflects back to me uh, my own divinity. You know, It doesn't always happen. It doesn't always happen with a happy ending. And it's not like in my present marriage as a woman, I didn't face ups and downs or having to assert boundaries. But then there are situations with which you can work with them. And then there are those where you just have to exit. Mm-hmm. And there's the difference. I love that story. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, I'm wondering if there's any... So first of all, if you haven't picked up the book, We're Like a Goddess, I re- highly recommend doing it because all of these messages and lessons and stories are in here threefold. And so I'm wondering... For those of us that haven't picked up the book yet, um, or who are just listening and, and coming to to learn about you and Goddess Archetype today, is there one message that you hope is taken away from this conversation, or one message that you hope is taken away from reading the book? If you're someone who does not have a clear relationship with your own feminine power, if it's distorted, suppressed, or or it's being given away, or it's being challenged at every step. And I would really like you to benefit from my writing. This writing is not just me opening a bunch of storybooks and then creating a book. This has been churned from my life and it has the conviction and blessings of countless students from across the world, of every different nationality and culture who have benefited from it. Sometimes I've shared their stories too of inner growth and inner sovereignty because of these teachings. Power is worth having. Power is your true nature. Power dwells in each one of us, even in a blade of grass and a beetle. And the blade of grass and beetle know its power. Do you? That is the question. And this power does not make us rebels or or harsh, antagonistic people. Because that's just That's just a number on power. Power makes us kind. Power makes us real. Power makes us discerning. Power makes us act on our no's and act on our yeses. So it's a 
it's it's something worth entertaining this idea and even if you're pretty comfortable with it maybe the goddess archetype teachings uh, gives you a lens into your psyche because the goddess is none but your own inner ability to churn the dark the ocean of your mind and come up with Lakshmi Durga kind of power from it. I think that's all I want to share. Thank you, Shunya. That's so beautiful. I I really appreciate your time. I I could sit here and ask you questions all day and listen to stories and myths all day, but I'm mindful of your time and thank you so much. Everyone, that concludes another amazing episode of Outside the Studio. I hope you enjoyed yourself. I hope you learned something new, maybe remembered something old, maybe felt inspired to apply something to your life. My, <laughs> you can hear my dog in the background. She's doing a little happy dance. Um, so Daisy enjoyed it. Anyhow, I wanted to just pop in here to wrap us up to say a couple of things. Number one, I have such an amazing team that helps me put these podcasts together. Without them, I wouldn't you know, be able to bring these amazing conversations to you. So thank you to my producer, my director of creative services, my sound editor, my um, engineer, Consistency Media don't know what I would do without you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And the amazing creation and artistic musical genius, Drew Lovern. Thank you so much for putting together this music for specifically for outside the studio. So unique to the show. Only place you're ever going to hear it is right here. Thanks you guys. You make my world go round. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, share on the socials, especially if it's a show that you think, hey, this could help somebody else. That's what this is all about, right? We're sharing information so that we're better, um, so that we're inspired, so that we're lifting each other up and we're learning how to be in this world, living on this planet to the best of our ability, sharing information and inspiring one another. And that's my hope. That's my hope for the show. Take care.